Hi there, welcome to the Cultures of Soul podcast. I'm Dino Sounds. This is our Record Store Day special episode. In this episode, we'll be visiting one of our favorite local record stores in Boston called In Your Ear Records. We'll chat with a few record store folks to get different views on Record Store Day. But first up, we'll hear from Greg Belson to learn a bit more about the man behind our Divine Disco Volume 2 compilation, which has officially been selected as a Record Store Day release in Europe and the UK. Hey, first up, thanks for having me on the show. Um, my name is Greg Belson. I'm a rare soul record collector and a DJ for about the last 30 years or so. And the first record that I actually bought back in 1979 was uh, Adam and the Ants. It was at the record exchange um, in uh, my, my hometown of Tolworth, which is just not too so far from Kingston-upon-Thames in the UK. Uh, 1979 cost me, I think, uh, 10 pence for a two-pack single. My actual journey into getting into soul music was uh, a little bit different to, I guess... Most people's really, but uh, I went to a grammar school in 1980 where it was predominantly heavy metal. So I, I trod uh, the metal and rock path for a while, uh, buying records by Judas Priest and, and, and Iron Maiden. Very quickly realized that this wasn't really for me. Um, so I, 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 uh, I, I went and found more records outside of those genres. And it started off really with the, with the hip hop boom. Um, which was coming over courtesy of early Public Enemy, um, Stetsasonic, and all that, all those kind of crews. Um, from there, it's where I discovered the breaks, really, which is, and I started, I guess, where everybody would start, really, which was with James Brown, Earth, Wind, and Fire, the Ultimate Breaks and Beats series, and just picking those up and seeing what was available um, outside of the comfort zone of my school, I guess. Um, and it was then that I discovered about record fairs and uh, um, and actually going to the record fairs with cash in hand and just asking dealers what they can recommend outside of um, outside of the, the James Browns and the Earth, Wind and Fires of this world. Uh, plus also having a very healthy underground radio uh, scene at the time in the, around London, courtesy of people like Giles Peterson, um, Robbie Vincent and uh, Patrick Forge and all those guys, which kind of kept you on your toes and, and opened up your mind to other things outside of the obvious musics that were that were getting played on mainstream radio. So it was kind of exploring hip hop avenues and the the radio stations and and the clubs of the time that opened up my ears to finding the rarer stuff and what it is to dig a little bit deeper. The inception of the defunct scene really came out of um, two separate clubs that came together. Uh, one of them was um, a club that I was running with DJ Vadim, and it was called Urban Soul. And the other was uh, a, a scene that uh, Keb Darge was forming with Danny DeCorto up in London, um, which came out of clubs like Leave My Wife Alone and Humpty Dump. I had Keb come down and guest for us at um, Urban Soul, and he saw that we were doing a, a real good job with getting numbers through the door, etc. So it was his suggestion that we all got together and we put a put a night on. At the time, we had no idea that it was going to be something like Deep Funk, which is what we ended up calling it. The, the amount of names that came through, uh, trying to think of a name for the night, uh, pretty horrendous. But Deep Funk is what Keb came up with and it stuck. Um, and the idea was to take two floors 
and, re- and, and represent the whole of the funk scene. So up on the first floor, we, we were supposed to have uh, P-Funk, modern soul, modern funk, uh, and that kind of ilk. And downstairs, it was all about the 60s burners, uh, the Hammond grooves, as we were calling them back in those days. And the, the key players uh, that were happening at that particular time included, obviously, Kev. Uh, but uh, the, the roster that we put together for that night was uh, Snowboy and myself, uh, we also have Marco from the Young Disciples, who unfortunately was a no-show, but um, he was definitely known for playing some some records along those lines. But people that got involved later on uh, included Ian Wright, um, Malcolm Casso was obviously a major player, um, but also we had record dealers such as Des Toussaint, Baby T Records, um, and also uh, Soul Bowl were, were obviously selling some serious records at that point. Uh, Martin Davis from Soul Explosion. Um, all of these people were, were key players. And across the Atlantic, we had the likes of uh, Dante Carfagna, DJ Egon, and of course, Josh Davis, a.k.a. DJ Shadow. But also, the, the records that were getting played at the time uh, included uh, The Humpty Dump by The Vibrettes, Al White and the Highlighters, Noise with the Boys on the Tune Curl label, um, Sounds of the City and Stuff and Thangs, Winfield Parker, on Arctic, Lemuria, Hunker Heaven, Raw Soul Express, The Way We Live on Cat. There was also uh, Billy Butterball Crane, Stepping Tall Part 2, Golden Toadstool, Silly Savage, which was uh, at that time it was still getting played as a cover-up. Uh, since then you can probably get that as for around about $30 or so. Uh, third Guitar, Baby Don't Cry, that was a big tune. But uh, a lot of heavy records got got broke at that point that at the time were really regarded more as Hammond groove music, if you like, if you were going to put a a genre title to it. And um, with uh, Keb then taking the deep funk thing and rolling with it along with Snowboy and then with Raw Deal, then it became uh, a genre. But really, it's, it's only... Its deepest meaning is the fact that it's 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 a club night, and it's it's actually great that a club night can have its own kind of genre or brand attached to it. That you can say that a record is actually a deep funk record. My journey into gospel music started um, actually at our club night, uh, Urban Soul, that I mentioned earlier with uh, DJ Vadim. We had Snowboy down as a guest and he was DJing a uh, packed out house. The place was rammed by 7.30. It was just crazy. And he got on the microphone to say that uh, he was about to drop his brand new Discovery or the brand new addition to his record box. And uh, I was actually at the bar at the time talking to somebody. I don't know. I, I was just, you know, my, my attention wasn't fully on the set, but... From the very first note, I, I kind of gravitated towards the, the, the decks and uh, asked him what it was that he was playing because it was just absolutely incredible music. Uh, and it was an album track, and he was gracious enough to tell me what it was because back in those days, secret weapons, you kind of kept to yourself, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, it was um, Clarence Smith, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child, on Gospel Truth. Um, that was at my club night in round about November 1994. Uh, I made a note of it on a piece of paper. And as soon as I got home, after we packed down and everybody got paid and whatever, uh, it, I got home and I went through my all, all the lists that I had, uh, paper lists that I'd received through the post, because uh, let's not forget, no internet in those days. So, And I lucked out with... Um, uh, a soul explosion list where there was a copy for sale at uh, I think it was twenty pounds. Um, so I, I, I immediately got my order in, and um, a few days later it arrived on my doormat. So, without a doubt, the Clarence Smith track was what kicked things off. Um, as it happened, I was actually going on a, a record dig a, a couple of days later in, in um, the Midwest of the United States, and um, lucked out on a on, on a big pile of forty fives, sat in a in a huge room pretty much unloved and uh, I started digging through that and that's where I found um, uh, The Lovers of God on the Shirtinga label which is uh, just an incredible 45 and what it was doing in the Midwest I don't know because it's um, it's a Los Angeles record uh, and I went to pay for it uh, along with the whole stack of records that I, I picked up that day and uh, the guy just said um, uh, 25 cents and I was, was just flabbergasted that such quality could be so cheap. Uh, and so really those were the two records that uh, started me off because as soon as as soon as I discovered those records it was just right there's something special here in this genre uh, let's get to it you know as far as the different types of gospel music that I'm actually into at the moment it's uh, it's no pun intended but it's you know it really is a broad church it's there's so many records out there still to discover and what I try to do as part of my radio show the divine call gospel show on dublab.com uh, is uh, explore the rarer side of the genre. So uh, it's not so much um, choir-based that, that I'm really looking for, even though there are still some excellent records which are very much based on, on a choir involvement. And it's not really straight ahead what some people might say, the clapping style of, of, of gospel or the frantic style. Uh, it's more looking for the underground grooves that... Uh, arguably didn't really have much attention at the time or because they were possibly misunderstood being um, records based in funk or disco often some people thought were conflicting values um, but obviously with funk and disco it was very much aimed towards a younger market so but the records that the style that I look for really is um, very much of, of that underground value so I have to listen to it to see whether it connects with with me so uh, it could be any um, subgenre within the gospel umbrella, uh, as, as long as it, uh, as long as it clicks. And I guess what you could say is, arguably, anything soulful, uh, anything with a, with with a, with a funk heavy beat, anything with heavy drums, anything with immaculate vocals, all of these things that attract me to gospel and to a recording is is what will make it into my record collection, and ultimately is what will get played on on the radio show. Uh, building a collection of gospel really takes a lot of hard work, really, because uh, there's there's such an expanse of music out there that it takes so much of your time looking through what is actually to your taste uh, and, and going through so much of the stuff which isn't. And so I, I spend a lot of time just looking through connections that I've made, you know, from producers to artists to um various states of uh, with with um, and cities around the the US that uh, talked to me musically that had an output of gospel that really coincides with my particular taste 
Um, but it, it's a lot of hard work that, that goes into it um, because there is just, as I say, it's just a, a huge expanse of music out there um, from typically the, the, era, the eras that I'm looking for, uh, early 60s right the way through to late 80s. So that's a lot of music to get through. Uh, so a lot of time, a lot of effort, uh, building connections um, with artists, building connections with uh, various other collectors. Uh, and, and um, just exploring my own path with it. There's no real piece of advice to give anybody else apart from find the style that you like within this uh, excellent genre and uh, just get exploring. And that's part of the joy of it, really. <laughs> I started DJing gospel in the clubs um, around about the time of 95, really, when uh, after I added into the play box the, the, the track that Snowboy was playing, the Clarence Smith cut that I mentioned earlier. It was a slow integration to start off with, really. Um, it was basically finding the music that uh, in the first place, which um, uh, back in those days, nobody was listing gospel in 95, 96, 97. Nobody was listing it uh, as part of any sales lists. Uh, the internet wasn't available, and so it was very much a hands-on thing at that point that um, whatever you discovered out in the field is what you were bringing back into your playbox. So it was a gentle integration, really, as to what kind of stuff I was bringing into, the, into, into a club situation. People seemed to enjoy it very much so from the get-go. It has a very uplifting feel to it, um, particularly if you're playing the right cut at the right time, which is um, what a, any great DJ should be capable of doing. Um, but with gospel, it just seems like it was the last kind of like real bastion of of, of digging that, that people haven't really looked into. Certainly within a in a club environment, um, and uh, so it, it, the, the original integration of playing good quality gospel funk, gospel soul, disco, etc. It took a minute to to involve, but uh, uh, I would suggest that at this day and age, I could play obviously a one hundred percent gospel set. Um, and I do do that every now and again when when I play at the NYC Download at Glastonbury as part of the Block 9 crew. Uh, it's one thing that they stipulated that they wanted on the bill. And uh, I'm, and it's amazing to actually play that kind of music um, to thousands of people, potentially, uh, and see them all really getting into it. So, so if I was playing a rare soul set, though, at this particular point um, uh, in 2019, I, I wouldn't necessarily make it 100% gospel. Um, but uh, I'll try and get in there as much as I can, and generally it's it's well received on the dance floor because it's it's sometimes music that people haven't heard before, and, and that's a great thing to break new music to people that have open ears and 
and uh, and just want to dance and, and learn something new. Well, since the 70s, there's been um, gospel disco appearing in clubs, particularly in New York City, with the likes of Larry Levan championing um, the Joubert singers, uh, Stand on the Word, and uh, um, just look at some of the, the, the playlists from Francis Grasso from back in the day, and you'll see um, that, that gospel-tinged disco uh, would, would be peppered into those slots. So it, it's been there from, from the start, since the, the inception of these amazing tunes. But what's been happening of, of late, certainly into the 2000s, into the late 90s, um, is that people like David Hill, who's put together compilations, but also uh, done some pr- productions and edits. Uh, you can look at also folks like Joey Negro, Joe Clausel, and his amazing um, work that he does with gospel-inspired beats and pieces. Dr. Bob Jones, who's been championing gospel music for decades. Uh, but also, without a doubt, on the mainstream, you'll be looking at people like Frankie Knuckles, who absolutely was was inspired by by gospel rhythms. In this day and age, um, certainly since um, my involvement in gospel disco really started to ramp up in, in 2013 by DJing at the NYC Download. And at that point, I was paying more attention of, of people around the globe that were actually playing this type of music at the same time that I was. So you had the likes of um, uh, Red Greg in, in the UK, um, uh, the chauffeur, who's obviously um, picking up their picking up the reins and doing some great stuff there. But then you go to New York City and you've got Tony Trofer, Skymark, uh, Horsemeat Disco, r- running things around the globe, um, a- across the world, and uh, having their Rinse FM show and doing the gospel according to James and Luke. Um, the guys over in Chicago with um, Darren Jones and Tone B. Nimble. Then you get over to Paris, France, and you see the whole Jaw family doing their thing. And... Um, not to mention you go down to Australia and there's people like Alex Dimitrides and the Boogie Monster doing his thing. So, <laughs> Also Rain and Shine Records doing their thing in New Zealand. Uh, it really is starting to spread around globally that, um, across the world and it's great to see it because it's an amazing music period, let alone putting it in a club environment and just watching dance floors explode. <laughs> Proprietor of Cultures contacted me a while ago with uh, ideas to put out um, some kind of gospel compilation, but we weren't exactly sure um, where we wanted to go. 
Um, the initial thought was maybe a funk thing or maybe something else, but uh, um, we weren't really rooted in the idea of disco at the time. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, we, we really put our heads together and we saw that the, that the things were starting to happen in that avenue um, that uh, the idea of putting together Volume 1 uh, came to fruition. And uh, it was a great idea because clearly there was uh, a demand for it in the market or at least a demand to discover new things. And this is uh, something that had been untapped, certainly as a, as a serious compilation. Um, I'm working with uh, with the guys there uh, has been um, a lot of fun. Uh, we've had difficulties in getting so many tracks licensed, uh, but uh, all in all, what we've, what we've been able to put out as um, as products that we were happy to see going to the marketplace was um, really rich and rewarding. And to see some of the reviews coming back from major players in the game uh, also onto mainstream radio, this was just intended to be a specialist compilation, and it's fantastic to see how it's been opened up into more mainstream ideas and radio shows um, literally across the globe. It's been awesome. A Divine Disco Volume 2 was uh, another awesome compilation to work on. We came at it from a a different angle than Volume 1 in that we wanted to dig that little bit deeper. Whereas the first compilation highlighted some tracks from more major labels in the gospel genre such as uh, Savoy, um, etc., etc., this one really does dig into... Um, private press releases and 45s that um, are are high valued in collector markets and one of the favourites without a doubt on the compilation is the Harrison Jones and the Voices of Harmony Um, just an amazing record out of Atlanta, Georgia Uh, I'm so happy to see that it's having its day in the sun uh, on this compilation but uh, another awesome track is uh, by Prophecy Take It to the Streets um, just a furious, uh, proper statement record, which um, highlights one of the sides of gospel music, which is not necessarily always about praising Jesus and praising God, but uh, actually talking about the social issues of the day, such as um, what is going on in the streets, let's take it to the streets, uh, protest songs So, uh, in many ways. So not things that um, are commonly get misconstrued is uh, about what gospel is 100% about, Gospel can be about um, positivity, negativity. Ultimately, what we're looking to do to accomplish with this album is to, first of all, get the music out there. That's the most important thing. These people that have long stayed under the radar on many people's um, musical maps, for whatever reason, um, 
it's 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 important that these people get heard because the music is just so amazing that uh, it, it's it's gone too long being um, unappreciated, and and that's for a number of different reasons. You know, it, it's uh, as as we've said previously. You know, gospel has long been a market that's not really been tapped into, certainly in um, f- from a clubbing perspective. Um, but it's just great to see that uh, people like Harrison Jones, people like uh, Deborah Flagg from the Converters, uh, the people like the Johnson Family Gospel Singers, um, will get to be available on a worldwide market. Hopefully, it will be picked up and, and listened to around the globe. That's that's the wish is to is to get these people recognised for the amazing work that they've put together and offered to us in the past. Hopefully. With great sales, we could push on to a volume three, but and possibly find more artists that deserve to have their moment of uh, having the spotlight shine on them uh, and finding more incredible music. That's the key: is just to keep keep finding this amazing, amazing music. Who knows what the future will bring on that one? It's great to have uh, Divine Disco Volume Two be a part of Record Store Day this year. Uh, clearly, it's a, a, an, an industry, a worldwide initiative. To, to raise profiles of record stores um, and it's great that uh, a release like this can can be part of that day the specialist advertising that goes along with it the awareness that will come of it be a part of record store day is pretty great for again for, for some uh, a release like this a very specialist release and it's arguably what record store day should be about um, not necessarily 180 grand pressings but compilations which are which are left of the field, uh, compilations which, are, which embody new music to the listener, uh, something that they might not have heard before. So to be part of Record Store Day in 2019 is pretty great, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing um, how it's received um, in record stores across the world. In Your Ear Records on Calm Ave near Boston University. This store is legendary to me for it was the place where I first picked up some of the Evans Pyramid singles. My name is Reed Lappin. I'm the owner of this establishment, In Your Ear Records, and I've been doing it since 1982. Um, through the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the, the many characters who come and go. Witnessed it all, almost. We started the store um, from an outdoor operation that was part of Deja Vu, 
back in like 1980, 80, probably 1979 or 80. Um, there was records being sold outside at MIT and Tufts and BU, and we were part of that operation until it became not profitable for the record store, and then they sold us the operation, and then we started doing it ourselves. We did it for a few years, and then most of the spaces we sold at our colleges started getting closed off. They didn't really they were less welcoming to, you know, outside presence selling records. So then we had to open up a store, 1982. What was it like back then? It was kind of, uh, it was interesting. There was, there was a punk rock club across from where we were called Club Soda. And there was Deli King and there was many other different venues. And we were a little record store right in the area. And, you know, somehow we kind of fit in with you know what was going on but back then it was just records no cds no videotapes cassettes nobody really cared about eight tracks nobody cared about so it was all about records to start and now full circle it's about records again 30 32 years later that's what people want records <laughs> In between, they wanted CDs, cassettes, you know, DVDs, videos, and now mostly records again. So it kind of vindicates our whole approach. We were there in the beginning selling what they want now. So we feel very smart about that. We're very lucky. <laughs> there was points in time where, you know, everybody thought things were just going to fall apart but they didn't, they just kind of, you know, got worse and then started getting better and, you know, and we just kind of held on. A lot of people closed up stores, but I guess because we felt we couldn't really do anything else, we had to stay, <laughs> stay as a record store and hope and pray that, you know, things would come back or, you know, things would get a little better, and they did. But, you know, you should always have faith in selling good music. That should never go out of style. But, you know, due to the format change, people, you know, oh, oh, we all want this format now or that format. Now we're back to this form. You know, it goes back and forth. You know, sometimes people want 45. Sometimes they want 12 inches. Sometimes LPs. You know, you never know what's going to, you know, how things are going to turn. You know, for a good 20 years, we were mostly selling records to DJs that was the big audience and you know there wasn't as much of an audience for like indie rock for many years and then that kind of you know came up you know in popularity because you know a lot of those records started disappearing and the kids who wanted them wanted to collect them and they they also realized that they were starting to be worth money if you could find them so you know a lot of things change with the values <laughs> if you know the values go up everybody you know kind of you know starts looking <laughs> you know there's always been a market for the most bizarre obscure albums if you have a one-of-a-kind record that's always good and so everybody's looking for the holy grail and you know you look if you can find something like that and if you get lucky you know you've you know made yourself a you know, a nice find <laughs> that you can also cash in on if you want to. <laughs>
The Evans Pyramid records came from Skippy White, you know, way back in the day. They had, I don't know what the connection was, but he had taken in a lot of the Evans Pyramid 45s to sell as part of his, you know, mass distribution uh, warehouse. And at the time, nobody cared about the modern Soul 45s. That was a real afterthought. So we had so many of them, you know, first we put them on our, you know, soul wall for 50 cents until people started buying them too quickly and then you know uh, things are changing we better you know see how many we have of these left but you know there was a time when you know lots of records that have gone up in price you know nobody cared so you just try to move them at the time so that's that's one thing that happened, you know. A lot of people probably bought the Evans Pyramid from us for 50 cents. You know, we must have sold two or 300 of them at that price. And then, you know, fortunately we still had a couple hundred more. So, and that was, you know, out of the, you know, Skippy White warehouse. You know, when they closed the warehouse and moved on, there was still a lot of stock there. And, you know, we got called in to do the clean out you know, after they left, and they left a lot of records, and we got a lot of records. So, you know, we were able to capitalize on a lot of records that got left behind, because back in the day, there was so much stuff around that, you know, you'd have to consider whether you had the, it was worth paying the storage space for a lot of records. And if you could sell them, or you're just paying to store records, you know, that was the equation that you were always weighing, you know. Look, if I just store all these records for, you know, three years, it's going to cost me, you know, $2,000. I can't afford that, you know. Things were, things were a lot tougher for making money in some ways. But, you know, but then they, they, they would pick up, you know, things would get much better, and then a lot of things would sell, and then... You know, there, there's been the two or three or four times where, you know, things went rock bottom again, and you'd have to decide, you know, how are we going to survive now? The only customers we have are just the old regulars, and everybody else is gone. You know, I remember looking at, you know, the, the remainder of the Sun Warehouse 45s in Texas. There was like, you know, 200,045s and all kinds of other things. And at the time, Nobody wanted those kind of records because there was not enough variety of titles. You know, what do you do when you run into 50,000 copies of the same record? You can't do very much. So they become, you know, worthless at that time. You know, you can't just keep selling. You couldn't even, it was hard to sell records back then that were common for a dollar. Nobody really wanted those records. As an event, they wanted rarer records, not the common ones.
Now, when we purchased 100,000 plus 45s, we sold big chunks of them to Craig Moore and um, John Manship. And, you know, I, actually, he might not have bought a lot of records from us at the time. It was probably other English dealers because he was looking for rarer stuff. And we probably had medium rare and common stuff at the time. There were maybe like 10 buyers at the time who bought, you know, like, you know, a thousand plus 45s from us. So, you know, that kind of paid for the buy. And then, you know, then I just moved things around as I could just to keep it going until, you know, the hip hop DJs started wanting 45s as well. And then we could pull out lots of sold 45s and that was good. But, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was waiting till, you know, the right market. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's not always the right market for certain types of 45s. They, they, you know, they really, it really changes. And so, you know, but that's, that's with most kinds of things, you know, you know, cassettes and laser discs and, you know, you think it's going to be, you know, worthless and then oh, people start getting interested. Reel to reels. The other records we had were probably local label, you know, soul and funk 45s that had some interest right from the, you know, the beginning. You kind of knew those were of some value, but, you know, sometimes you misjudge the value, but, um, but Evans Pyramid was the only one that kind of went from being, you know, a, a, you know, just a giveaway record to a valuable record. And, you know, and then we had the other one. What's the other thing by the Ro Royal something? Royal, I want your body. Yeah, we had just a couple copies of that, not many. But there were a couple of that. And we didn't, never had any of the 12-inch. Those stayed with Skippy as, uh, you know, re-wraps to send back other 12-inches or something, you know. <laughs> That's what I heard from somebody. You know, there's just things that appear and you know you get lucky i mean i i remember what was the band uh, you know we had multiple copies of some records that we let go too cheap <laughs> but you know some lps that you know at the time nobody wanted but you know somebody had the foresight to just scoop them all up because um, you know we didn't know what to do with a lot of the records back then you know there were emerging markets or something like that or you were behind the time realizing the value of certain things but that's always happened you know sometimes you can capitalize and sometimes you can't some people working here like bob gibson and michael smart i think he has another last name now but you know those guys were into the early breaks and beats scenes bob was searching out unknown breaks and beats at the very beginning and putting together cassette tapes of you know many breaks and beats for DJs there was that kind of early scene and they were going to the shows at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York along with all the other knowledgeable breaks and beats and DJ people you know selling off records to you know producers and DJs so, you know, that whole thing was happening. We were just kind of in the background, just selling things out of the store, you know, not going right to the, you know, the main people. But, you know, I don't think it was ever easy for 45s. I don't think 
I don't think too many people wanted to promote 45s because it takes a lot of work and you have to kind of have that, you know, 45 cents. Otherwise, you're just selling 45s for one price or just keeping them away from people. <laughs> they were always looking for things that were just too rare to find. Um, you know, Surge and Khan, you know. <laughs> Those guys would have to go elsewhere most of the time. Sometimes they would find something and then, you know, or if somebody else found something here, then, then all the other guys would come in looking for the same thing. So it was like, you know, oh, that's a one-of-a-kind record. You know, we don't have quantity of that. And everybody would assume that whatever find they made in the store, there was quantity of. So, you know, it was mostly kind of a pain dealing with that attitude. Um, but, you know, we've mostly put things out. You know, you can sift whatever you find, you know. It's all out and priced, you know. I, mean, I don't try to, you know, keep things behind for certain people. You know, we never really did that kind of, you know, favoritism of certain people, you know. So that part was good. You know, things just went out, you know, for sale, and you can find them if you want. And I try to, as records come in, we try to put them out quickly. We don't try to, you know, as quickly as possible. But, you know, that involves checking, cleaning, and pricing the records so they, you know, unless we just, you'll get five boxes of records and by the end of the day, they're all out. So, you know, sometimes that happens. And, you know, I'd rather do it that way than just, you know, put everything aside or hoard everything, you know. Somebody said the better record stores are the ones that have the, you know, quickest turnaround of collections, you know, they put them out. I'd rather put it out, see it sell, move on to the next collection versus holding on to things, trying to get the most for each record. And, you know, if you acquire the records, you're the one in charge of deciding how they get sold. So, you know, people get mad at, you know, certain places that have records but don't let you see them. You know, they've kept them aside. But, you know, at some point, if they die, the records get unleashed, and then everybody can see them again. That's the way it is. You're the um, caretaker of the records for as long as you are alive. And then, you know, they go somewhere else. Now we'll hear from a few record store folks with their thoughts on Record Store Day. So my name is Dylan. I'm one of the key holders here at the Newberry Comics on Newberry Street. For me, it's, I mean, I buy a lot of records um, and I get really excited at like 
things that are collectible as well as just being like a cool piece of music. Um, so it's fun to see a day set aside for artists to kind of like put out something that they know people are going to be really interested in. Um, and also see some things that usually don't are either really old and haven't been pressed in a long time or have never been pressed at all. Like kind of put a spotlight on releases like that. Um, it's funny, like I've done, I've done a few record store days now. And the cool thing is just like seeing the people who come in consistently for record store day. It's just cool to see like some of these familiar faces pop up and get to know these people that are like really, um, really passionate about like buying music and specifically like records. Um, and kind of just walking up in the morning and seeing people lined up and like, just being like, how long have you been out here for? And some people are camping out for like hours and, um, I think it's really good because it caters to um, a lot of different people. Um, music is cool because it's like a it's a universal thing. Like most people are really into music, and um, there's usually always something for like there's something for the serious collectors out there, and there's something for people who just like walk in off the street and they may not even know that it's record store day, but they could come in and see something. They're like, oh, I never even knew this existed, and I may have just come in come into stores that day. Um, so it's it's just a cool way to kind of like get everyone who's interested in music excited about something on the same day and get them in the store at the same time. So it's for a place like Newbury Comics that caters to a lot of different people. It's nice to kind of like have something special to kind of bring all those people in and connect them in different ways. Hi, I'm Matt Pooler. I work at In Your Records. I think it's the exposure to music. I mean, just being around music, you really get to see it, you know, in a visual sense where you're just literally surrounded by like stacks and stacks of records and you never know what you can find. I don't know, I, I, it's hard to do best finds. I think like whenever you like, at least for me, categorize the best find as something you don't really expect to find. I'm not sure what that would be, but it's more the element of surprise and like, oh, I've been looking for this record forever. It's like things that sort of catch you off guard. Cool. What are your thoughts on Record Store Day? I mean, it's good for exposure, but it maybe causes more trouble than it's worth. I think what's most fascinating is you'll meet people who will only shop on Record Store Day for the entire year. That's the only day of the year they'll like buy records. I think that's a little, I don't know if bizarre, but it's very dedicated in a sense. Um, regarding Record Store Day, you know, it's, it's something that's being promoted by the industry because they no longer have the, the outlet of superstores and chain stores to sell things. So now they're trying to say, oh, you know, we're behind all the smaller mom and pop stores and we're doing this limited product thing. But I've never been a fan of limited product stuff. I think that's kind of, if something is worth putting out, why limit it? Just put out, you know, a greater amount and sell it to more people rather than this numbered limited edition thing, you know, I kind of, I always suspected that was kind of a, a marketing, you know, sleaze tactic to make things more valuable from the start. And I'd rather just, you know, hey, let people listen to the music. Why make it into this manufactured collectible? But some people seem to like that. They think they're getting in on a good thing. Um, you know, and you have, these new manufactured collectibles versus old original collectible vinyl, which I think is much more interesting to more people, you know, than the, the limited stuff, which 
is interesting just because some people can flip it really quickly for more money or they can get it and feel that they were very lucky. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's just a, it's just a, a special holiday for the people who like to stand in line and wait for things. But, you know, a lot of people just come here that day and they just shop regularly. And I think that's, you know, the way it should be, not standing in line. That's my feelings about it all, okay.